0: SEC fans, this is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South. Welcome to another installment of the SDS podcast. Coming to you from the iHeart Media studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 a.m. and 95.3 FM. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC. Our guest for this episode is former Florida quarterback Danny Warfel. He won the Heisman Trophy in 1996 the same year that he led the Gators to their first national championship in school history. And I will forgive him because that victory was against my school. You can follow him on Twitter, at Danny Warfel. Danny, thank you so much for joining me on the program.
1: Yeah, for sure. Great to be with you, John.
0: The Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Bud Light. The Bud Light tailgate tour is hitting several incredible locations this season. And the next stop is this week in Jacksonville for the Florida-Georgia game. It may not officially be the world's largest outdoor cocktail party anymore, but that's what it's always going to be to me. The party is taking place at the Jacksonville Fairgrounds on the corner of Franklin and Duval, right in the shadow of Everbank Field. The event starts bright and early at 11 a.m., so head on over anytime between 11 and kickoff, which is scheduled for CBS at 3.30. The first 600 people in attendance are going to receive two complimentary 16-ounce Bud Lights And believe me, folks, I went to this event last year before Florida, Georgia, because I was in town covering that game. It is quite the experience. And I was on the clock, so I didn't really get to enjoy it like you will. But there's TVs everywhere, tailgate games, all the food and drink you can imagine. Bud Light is a proud sponsor of Florida Gators football. You must be 21 years of age to enter. Of course, security will be checking identification. Again, that is this Saturday at the Jacksonville Fairgrounds, the quarter of Franklin and Duval, 11 a.m. until kickoff at 3.30. And now Danny Warfel. Danny, I'm sure you like to say, like all alums do, that it's great to be a Florida Gator. But just exactly how great is it right now to be a quarterback in Gainesville since Tim Tebow left town?
1: Uh, I tell you, uh, I think, uh, you know, between the coaches and the quarterbacks, that uh, you know, the success that Spurrier and and we had and and Meyer and and Tebow has really just set the stage so high that, uh, you know, just a lot of high expectations but it's tough. We're we're struggling right now. We're not getting much production at all uh, on offense. You know, we've had some success running the ball, but but passing and scoring uh, haven't done well. It's not good.
0: Yeah, you have to ask the question very simply. I mean, we're talking about the Florida Gators here and the birth of the fun gun when you were playing quarterback back in the 90s. This school produced Steve Spurrier and yourself and the aforementioned Tim Tebow, all Heisman Trophy winners. Two of you were national champions and. You know, Chris Leak was a heck of a quarterback. Shane Matthews was a heck of a quarterback. Rex Grossman was a first-round pick. You just assume that high school kids want to go to Florida and play that position. Is there any way to explain the struggles that have been going on here for, for really quite some time now?
1: Well, there's so many factors coming into that, and the, the, the multiple different offenses that they've run, the different coordinators over the years. I think we've had some some really good kids in there getting a shot at it, just, just things didn't work out, whether it be – Injuries for, for a few of them or just opportunities, but you're right. The bottom line is you can, you can talk about a lot of things, but in, in this business it's about production and it's about winning, and we just haven't had that uh, for several years now. So I join a lot of the Gators and being frustrated with that, but I'm also optimistic. I think we've got a real talented young quarterback that I think will continue to develop, and, and the sky's the limit.
0: Now since Coach Mack has been there, Danny, when you're watching this team, and you see some of the – maybe it's one of these games where it's just not happening offensively. When you put your coaching hat on, your ex-quarterback hat on, how often do you say to yourself, you know what, the offensive line is just not giving this kid enough protection? Or we really need more playmakers. We're not explosive enough running the ball or out wide. Or how often do you say to yourself, you know what, this kid just doesn't have it. That's a throw he should have made. That's a read he missed, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, you see all that a little bit. Um, I'm always cautious to be too opinionated because unless you're in the meeting room and knowing exactly what they're trying to accomplish, it's hard to to know what they're thinking on a lot of the plays. Um, you know, but I for me I'm just sort of stuck in this uh for good and bad, the spurrier mindset. You know, I was trained by him and how I look at things and see things and what plays you'd run are audible to are just so ingrained. So there's definitely been some times where You'll see them line up, and you'll see it might be a cover one, or you see the coverage. and you're like, oh, I know exactly what I checked to, and there's a good chance Ike might catch that ball and score. And you kind of get excited, and then you see a, a different play that didn't seem like it had much chance to, to be successful. So there's definitely some of that. Um, but, again, I'm trying not to be critical. In fact, John, I was just recruited to coach fifth-grade tackle football for my son's team. And, you know, preseason, everybody was super excited to have a Heisman Trophy winner coach. But after we lost our first game, boy, it was like I knew nothing and didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> uh, taking some heat. So you got to have some thick skin, but I'm trying to be less critical.
0: Well, hopefully you're not taking the alleged heat that Coach Mack is right now in Gainesville. The, the news of this week is that... But, you know, maybe some death threats that he's received, you know, himself, his family. That's always scary. And it sort of comes with a territory with a $5 million salary and an expectant audience of football fans that just want to see more, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. But it's year three for Coach Mack. He has had some success. He's won the East each of the last two years. I know it's been a struggle so far in 2017. But you talked about your relationship with Coach Spurrier and how legendary that was. We saw what Coach Meyer did. What he was when he was here, borderline unprecedented. Just your take on Coach McElwain, both the football coach and the man, year three of his tenure.
1: Yeah, well, I think he's come in. He's got good swagger. It seems like the players have really, you know, respond, and they've got a lot of good momentum. And you know, if you look at the numbers prior to the season, I mean, I think that you know his first couple of years winning percentage was right there with Spurrier and you know, to be in the SEC East two years in a row is quite an accomplishment, the the SEC's champion and go to the game. So it's it's almost like a tale of two cities. It's like, you know, when you look at it on some levels you're like, oh, okay, we're we're doing pretty good, but then you look at the, the offensive production and the the frustration there and the opportunities we, we had to to be better than that and then the way this year's unfolding, there's a lot of frustration. But I'm I'm always uh slow to criticize and and very optimistic and hopeful. I think he's a really good coach and uh, I'm I'm still behind him and and looking forward to some good things ahead.
0: You know, I spent a full day with Paul Feinbaum up at ESPNU and the SEC network about two weeks ago. and, And as he and I were having lunch and I was there to do a feature story on him and his show. And I wanted him to give me sort of like a one word or a one phrase response for how he categorizes all the 14 different fan bases in this great league, the SEC. And when we got to Florida...
1: Tough one word, man. Yeah, it's, it's
0: very tough. But but when we got to Florida, he said, very demanding. And I was actually with Laura Rutledge, who you may have met at some point. She's a Florida grad herself and someone I go back with. But And she agreed with that assessment. And this is a team that, even though, as we've seen, has won the East the last couple of years... It's been kind of in ugly fashion. And it wasn't like when you were in school, lighting up the scoreboard with 40 and 50 points. And it wasn't like when Coach Meyer was there. And it's just, you're, you're boat racing people, incredible offensive performances. This seems like some programs, not only do you need to win, but you need to win with a certain degree of style. You know, if you're at Iowa or at Arkansas, those fan bases are okay winning ugly 14 to 10. Florida, it seems like, doesn't want to win those types of games. So how much yeah. more difficult does that make it for Coach Mack? And maybe you had a hand in this to some degree because you guys were so much fun to watch a generation ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, first of all, uh, for Paul Feinbaum, that's two words. Very demanding. <laughs> so he kind of... I did
0: say word or phrase, I suppose.
1: Okay, all right. Well, how long can the phrase be? <laughs> you know, that, I uh, So that's, I mean, you're right. I think you hit it on the head. You know, I mean, if you you put this team the last three years in the mid 80s or the late 80s gator fans are probably thrilled you know Uh, but we have uh, so much success in the 90s and then with urban meyer and tim tebow and you know three national championships the expectations they just are high and when you look at the success of not just the football program but the over overall athletic program at the university of florida i mean it's elite they're winning national titles in sports, I don't even know that that you compete in. I mean, you go to a football game, and in the middle of the quarters, they kind of honor all the different teams that have won national titles, and you can't even keep up. So I think there is a really high level of expectation. There is a level of demand, um, you know. And uh, although at this point, I'd still take win and ugly uh, than to the alternative. You know, we've we've lost some games we needed to win. So, um, but you're right. Uh, I agree with you.
0: Now, you mentioned being critical of your former team. You actually brought it up before I even had a chance to question you about it. You know, we live in a social media age, and it's not uncommon. Just go to Rocky Top right now, and there's tons of former volunteers who are all over Twitter and Instagram and what have you, and they're being critical of the program, and they want to get rid of Coach Jones, and this embarrasses them as an alum. And uh, that's clearly not your style. That's not the way you go about things. But I'm sure there's lots of former teammates of yours who do those types of things. So what's your take on it? Because, I mean, you're Danny Warfel. There's a statue of you outside the stadium. If you want to be critical of the program or the quarterbacks or the head coach, a lot of people are going to listen. So it's sort of an interesting situation to be in. Why do you choose not to do that way? And are you actually okay with some former players who do voice their frustrations publicly?
1: Well, I mean, everybody uh, has the opportunity to share what they think. And as you said, in this digital age, everyone gets a voice, which I think is, is pretty cool in some ways because, you know, in our society, in the world, a lot of times there's people that just don't have a voice, and now there's, a, there's an avenue for people to, to express themselves. With that said, you know, I was talking to my kids last night, and one of them said something really ugly, and I said, you know, why, why would you say that? He said, well, it's true. I said, yeah, but not everything that's true needs to be said, you know, for for one thing, just in terms of some polite civility uh, in, the, in the world. But I'm also... Um, I'm not not interested in trying to, to focus on all the negative. I mean, if I clearly thought uh, we were at a position where where there was a, unsustainable or something, I, I might be more vocal. But I really, in my heart, I really think McIlwain's a good coach, and I think we've got a lot of good things going. And so I'm I'm behind him and trying to trying to stick to that.
0: So what's it like when you're watching a game these days? Do you watch from home? Do you go to the stadium every Saturday to get an opportunity? Do you like to have friends and family over watching the game with you? Do you need to kind of be by yourself in the man cave taking it all in? Do you watch every snap religiously? Do Do you kind of just casually pay attention and don't take it too seriously anymore? Are you throwing your hat at the screen when Felipe Franks takes a sack uh, or do you, you, know, you don't get too worked up about it. I, I'm just curious, your experience watching a game these days, because I bet it's vastly different from player to player.
1: Uh, fun fun question, um, one I've not been asked, but probably it's changed over the years for me as a fan. Um, and uh, this year, for instance, I've not been able to go to any games because I'm coaching youth football on Saturdays. Right. So even for this big event, we'll be in – Jacksonville for our event coming up, uh, but I'm gonna have to fly home early and not go to the game so I can coach. So that that's one thing and along with that there's been several times where I've got a to, to D V R the game, which then means I can't check my phone because I don't wanna see any texts from people and it's to you know, do. I was watching I was watching the Tennessee game late uh on delay and I I mean I must have got fifty text messages in the last, you know, twenty minutes of the game and I'm just dying Dying to know what happened, so it's it's uh, that's that's part of it. There's a little bit of emotion. I, uh, my son and I, uh, both sons, we kind of went nuts when when that game ended and the big win. So we had some fun. But I'll also say, you know, there's a little bit of normalcy. My wife's like, you know, when you guys are watching the games, no one hears anything we're saying, and that's frustrating. So now we're we're trying to realize, okay, we got to also sometimes you know pause the game if there's something important that mom needs to say and give her our attention too. So we. We're wrestling with all the things that probably everybody else wrestles with trying to be a football fan.
0: Yeah, as a Florida State guy at 2-4, and I'm not taking it as seriously as I should have anymore either. So you (laughs) you mentioned Ike earlier, clearly a reference to Ike Hilliard, one of the sensational wide receivers you had at your disposal. Uh, Sort of a different slant on a similar question I just asked. But when you watch a game today, say Tyree Cleveland, who makes that catch against Tennessee to win that game, how often do you see today's Gators and say, wow, that kid's pretty good? How often do you say to yourself, yeah, he's okay, but he's no Redel Anthony? Yeah, I like this Malik Davis kid. That was a nice run, but you know what? I'd rather throw it in the belly of Fred Taylor.
1: <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't thought that too much. I mean, the the athletes are so phenomenal, and they have been. Um, it sure would be interesting to stack up uh, some of the, the recent players and teams against ours and see what would happen um, but no, I haven't, haven't thought of that too much, but, you know, just even thinking about Ike and Ridell and Jacquez and Chris Doring and just what an amazing, talented group of receivers that I got to play with.
0: An embarrassment of riches, to say the least. So if you're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, you know that the South loves football. You know what the South also loves? Crystal. That's right. Crystal, home with the classic Crystal Burger. They are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college well after midnight. Right now, it's only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, just 79 cents. And because no tailgate is complete without wings, Crystal has you covered there as well. All wings, any wings, 49 cents a pop, Saturdays and Sundays, whether it's boneless or traditional, buffalo, barbecue, any wing, any flavor, 49 cents all weekend long. Best of all, Crystal is going to hook up the Saturday Down South podcast. Listeners, text SDS to 37793 right now, and you're going to get two free crystals. That's SDS to 37793 via text message. 79 cent crystals, 49 cent wings. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to hurt your hand giving all those high fives. So stop by your local Crystal today. You're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast and our guest once again, former quarterback from Florida, Danny Warfel. Again, I'm a Florida State guy. I have to ask this question because I kind of know the other side of it. But you and Danny Cannell knew each other a little bit in high school. Similar recruiting grades came out of school at the same time. You out of the Fort Walton Beach area, Cannell out of the Fort Lauderdale area both highly recruited and had a lot of similar schools on the radar. So I'm curious how that happens to back then versus today where these kids have social media and these camps are all over the country. I think recruits now know each other a lot better and can make more informed decisions because clearly you and Danny Cannell were not going to go to the same school. He ended up in Tallahassee. You ended up in Gainesville. You both had sensational careers. You're in your respective schools hall of fame. But tell me about the relationship you two guys had once upon a time 17 18 years old and how those decisions for each of you finally came together on signing day
1: yeah you know to, to compare it to today I really couldn't because I'm really not uh, aware and not really dialed into how that whole process works today but you know back then you're you're right there was very little uh, social media real interaction and um, I, I may have met uh, Danny once, uh, maybe twice before kind of that decision was made. You know, a lot of people don't remember there was a third quarterback that was equally as uh, rated as high as me and Danny Cannell, and that was Eric Cresser. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was a phenomenally talented quarterback as well. And before I committed, uh, Danny committed to Florida State and Eric committed to Florida so it, it, for me, it made it a wash. I was looking at both those schools equally. And, uh, you know, either way, I was going to have to compete against a phenomenal quarterback. And, uh, you know, for different reasons, I chose Florida to play for Spurrier. And I, I just felt like the school was was the one I'd go to if I weren't playing football. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know, Eric went on to uh, transfer to Marshall, win a national championship there. Um, and so he had a great a great career with that too. But, yeah, it was just one of those things you, you – you didn't have the, the ability to stay as connected, but you could hear, you know, as soon as somebody committed, you knew that. And so you kind of had that on your radar, but not at all like, like it is today. It's probably like, you know, playing Nintendo Tecmo Bowl back then versus Madden. now. Oh, you're
0: speaking my language. Deal. You are speaking my language. I, I, to this day, I swear, if the original Tecmo Bowl was an Olympic event, I would have medaled. I guarantee you. <laughs> so, so you're telling me, if Danny Cannell commits to Florida once upon a time... Danny Warfel's decision would have been what?
1: Well, it depends on Eric Cresser. If Eric Cresser had gone to Florida State and Danny Cannell went to Florida, I probably would have gone still to Florida. You know, if both of them would have gone to Florida, then that would have that would have been hard. Uh, probably, probably been more open to Florida State at that point. So it was really the three of us uh, trying to play that out
0: in well, my mind. Well, it's a good thing the show wasn't live. They'd be burning up the phone lines right about now. So, uh, Dandy, you obviously won the Heisman Trophy in 96. Uh, I'm a voter as well as an ex-winner. Of course, you're a voter. But honestly, how closely do you pay attention to the Heisman race? Are you one of those guys who kind of notoriously fills out his ballot a couple weeks earlier? Are you truly paying attention to the games on the West Coast to see what the Pac-12 kids are doing? How seriously do you take that role and uh, just how you go about deciding who you think is worthy of winning the award you did once upon a time?
1: It's a very important decision, and I think you need to be informed. I think uh, I don't get as caught up maybe as others in in following it in depth the entire season. You know, there's so many things that change throughout the course of the season, and the front runners in the beginning often don't end up uh, being in the mix at the end. So it's usually towards the the end of the year that I'll pay more attention. And uh, I've actually got uh, some some people that are close in my life uh, that – that uh, study this stuff like it was their job, even though it's not. And uh, and so I get some really good inform—they're like my scouts. And uh, so we'll do some scouting calls together and share some emails as we get close to the voting and and uh, try to be very informed.
0: So you won in 96. I want to review a couple of the more interesting winners since then and find out what your ballot looked like. So your very first year as a voter, Charles Woodson won from Michigan, the only— Predominantly defensive player to win. I believe the runner-up was Peyton Manning. Tell me who you voted for in '97.
1: Well, a couple things. First, uh, I kind of have a policy not to not to talk about that.
0: So <laughs> even one, 20 whatever. years later.
1: Secondly, honestly, um, I don't even re- remember that far back. But thirdly, uh, because I don't remember and I'm not sure, I'll break my first policy and say I'm almost certain I voted for Peyton. I was shocked. Um, you know, I think that really showed me the the regionality of awareness and voting, especially back then, because you know I had all I had heard was Peyton Manning, and really hadn't heard near as much about Charles Woodson. So I was shocked, you know. But when you go around the country and look at what other people were seeing and paying attention to, and the amazing career he had, you know, it made a little more sense. But I'm pretty pretty sure i voted for peyton that year
0: okay i think i managed to crack open pandora's box here i know the people in new york are the heisman trost it's okay to talk about past votes uh 2000 chris winky wins a lot of people didn't want to vote for him especially ex-players because he was 28 years old at the time after a six-year minor league baseball career do you remember voting for chris winky in 2000 if you didn't who maybe you voted for
1: i i don't even remember who was up uh, besides Chris Winkie, Who was second? Who was second, third? I believe,
0: was Josh Heupel, the Oklahoma quarterback, who actually bested him in the national title game that year.
1: Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I, without even fibbing, I can tell you I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I really don't.
0: Okay, last one, and then we'll move on. Uh, Cam Newton in 2010, another very controversial one, former Florida quarterback before things went awry in Gainesville. He goes the Blinn Community College route, comes back to Auburn, statistically maybe the best season we have ever seen. But there were a lot of people who abstained voting for him because there was some fishiness getting him on the planes. Did you vote for Cam Newton in 2010, even though he was by far the best player in the country?
1: Um, again, I don't remember. My, my my sense would be yes. I think that you know if he were an eligible player, you know that was competing, and at the time, uh, you should you should pay attention to that. You know if there had been some violations or allegations or he was suspended by the time of the vote then I think you clearly have to take that into consideration but I uh definitely you know if you're voting on who's the best player he was clearly that not even just for that year but for many
0: oh yeah so let's go back to your senior year the third to last game you ever played and then the last game you ever played in that orange and blue uh, that was my senior year of college in Tallahassee, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I was I was in the student section for 24-21 at Doak Campbell Stadium. I don't know if you still have any aches and pains from that game, but we all know what Coach Spurrier said in the post-game locker room. And I don't care how many times you rewatch that tape, you can't help but feel bad for <laughs> number 17 in orange and blue because you took some unbelievable shots in that game. Tell me that game as you remember it.
1: Well, we were really thin on the offensive line. You know, the, if you look at our starting line that year from the beginning of the year, I think we only had one guy playing in that game. So we had four young guys. And, of course, Florida State was loaded, um, Boulware, Renard Wilson, and, and many more. Were Andre
0: just, Wadsworth, they had three first-round oh, picks on that D-line.
1: Really good players. And so they were just coming in, in really quick. And uh, they they were, they were good. My dad counted he said he he counted me getting knocked down 32 times which seems more than possible uh but there were a lot of hits and you know there's a lot of questions as to whether some of them were late or not There was a few of them that were called a few of them that weren't um but it was a it was a really tough tough battle tough game and uh and you guys you guys pulled it out it was a big win for florida state
0: now, let's fast forward five or yeah. six weeks or so. I know you'd rather talk about that one. Uh, the Sugar Bowl rematch, I was there for that one as well. Unfortunately, not a lot of Bourbon Street fun for me after the fourth quarter. But 52-20, if I had true serum injected into me before kickoff, I knew the Florida State couldn't beat that Florida team on a neutral field. But the highlight I remember is that when Steve, that's when Steve Spurrier finally embraced the shotgun. And I think it was because of what happened in Tallahassee earlier Was there anything specifically different about the game plan, playing that defense a second time, or was it just let's back up five yards, get in the shotgun, get rid of the ball a little quicker? Was that really the only thing different you had to do?
1: I I mean, it really was. They were getting through so quick, and they were also, you know, playing a lot of man-to-man coverage. So, you know, that's sort of a feast or famine when you play against a a Spurrier offense. You know, we're going to – we're going to try to get some shots, and if we get enough time to make a decent throw against the route, it's hard to cover those guys across the whole field. And so, you know, in Tallahassee, they they were getting through and getting to me uh, many times as or before, I guess, and sometimes after I threw it. But, uh, you know, Coach Spurrier was a big believer in taking snaps under center, and, and he was very much against shotgun for a lot of reasons. One of the ones biggest is timing. Uh, you know it can throw off your timing, but the other that a lot of people don 't think about is you know if you take a snap under center you're all, you can look up the entire time and see everything that's happening. If you have to catch a snap from shotgun you've got to take your eyes off the defense for a second, and they can change they can do something different, you can miss something, so he just didn't believe in that, but really felt like, you know what we need to make that adjustment, and we did it gave me just a little bit more time. And, uh, and our receivers and, and that man-to-man coverage, they, they couldn't hang with them the whole game. So that that was a great – one of the greatest coaching adjustments, I think, ever. And we got a championship because of it.
0: Now, you mentioned Chris Doring earlier as well. He's a guy I know a little bit. I had him on this show about a month ago. And I asked him about the birth of the fun and gun as it came to be known. Was that really a, quote-unquote, complicated offense at the time? Oh, for the most part – again, I asked Chris the same question from a receiver perspective – was it basically, OK, curl flat concept, double post concept, four verticals every now and then? Was it basically simple football, but you're doing it with four and five wide out of the shotgun, which was revolutionary at the time, and you're just doing it faster and with better athletes than anybody else in the country?
1: Yeah, well, again, most of the, most of the fun and gun was not in the offense. But no, I mean, I think coach was, was, was ahead of the game back then, and, and it wasn't just... Running the same plays that everybody else was running, but uh there were some pattern concepts down the field that were really really special that I think he designed. but the other thing is the way that he would teach um very much was getting to the right play against the right defense, and so you know you could you could run a, a you know a post corner route, but if it's against the cover three, you're just running right into the coverage. But if you catch it against, you know, a a cover four or the right coverage, you might end up with a guy wide open. So you can call it, but if it's not the right coverage, you better get to another concept play. So that was part of it was the way he would teach you to get into the right play. The other thing was the specificity in which he would coach the routes. That's something I don't see anywhere and never saw something close to that, even in the NFL, was, you know, you can say run a curl flat, but, or you could say run a, you run a corner out, but when he's running the corner route, you're getting in the seam, you're running up the seam to 15 yards, and, and the seam is a very particular spot, and then you're putting your foot in the ground, your inside foot in the ground at about 14 yards, 14 to 15, you're cutting at an angle to catch the ball at about 22 to 24 yards down the field, 2 to 3 yards from the sideline. So, you know, you can say run a corner, and there's a lot of people that'll run a corner route, but... If you do it that way every time and you've thrown it 7,000 times in practice, you know, I can close my eyes and throw it out there and still have a chance to make it work. So it's the way he coaches it, the knack of the timing of the plays, uh, all that comes together at that time to make it just fantastic.
0: Danny, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question so bluntly before, but what's it like having your own statue outside Ben Hill Griffin Stadium? Were you consulted on it at all? Do you think it looks just like you? Do you think it looks nothing like you? Do you think it's awesome and you take photos with it? Do you think it's really weird and you avoid it? I have no idea, and I never will know what that experience is about.
1: Well, everything you said is kind of true. It's awesome. (laughs) Sometimes I I forget because it's so uh, surreal. Um, I've had pictures with it. Uh, I was driving by with a friend the other day, and they let us stop and take a picture. But there, you know... 50,000 Gator fans out there are getting ready for the game. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just picture it as we drive by. So we timed up a selfie where we got the two of us in the picture with the trophy as we drove by. So I don't know if that's legal or wise or what.
0: but For uh, you, I think it's okay. Good
1: timing. It was good timing.
0: So if, it, if there's going to be another player that gets a statue outside Ben Hill Griffin, there's three of you, Coach Spurrier and yourself and Tim Tebow. Is there anybody potentially number four, uh, a fourth? And does it only have to be quarterbacks?
1: Uh-huh. That's a good question. But uh, sure, be nice to have to make some space and add another one. And probably not going to happen this year.
0: But <laughs> no,
1: we're we're looking longingly for it.
0: No, I don't think anybody's cutting up bronze for Felipe Franks just yet. Maybe, hopefully, that will be the case, but not quite yet. Danny, before we let you go, we know you have a fantastic event coming up at TPC Sawgrass, one of the true golf destinations in the country, the Desire Cup. Instead of me not being able to describe it very well, please tell our listeners all about it and how they can get involved.
1: Yeah, well, we're hosting the seventh annual Desire Cup uh, uh, presented by um, Just Bear Chicken, and we are super thrilled. It basically combines the passion of of football and this Florida-Georgia rivalry with you know the work and the passion I have for Desire Street Ministries and all the different under-resourced communities where we get to serve all across the Southeast, so we kind of get a bunch of Florida fans and Florida celebrities along with Georgia fans and Georgia celebrities, and we have several head-to-head matchups uh, all across the golf course, kind of Ryder Cup style at the Stadium Course TPC Sawgrass, and I have a wonderful dinner uh, the night before and program Tony Barnhart's kind of hosting it and. We got Steve Spurrier, Shane Matthews, Wilbur Marshall, Billy Horschel, golfer will be there, and a bunch of a bunch of uh, gator, uh, Georgia greats as well. And so it's just a really fun event. Um, you know, people want to learn more can go to DesireStreet.org. Still a couple last minute spots if people are uh, quick on the draw. But we're also having a campaign to raise some money to start some new programs. And uh, you can get to that as part of this event through our website, DesireStreet.org, and we could really use your help.
0: Danny, best of luck with the event. That really was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, John. That was former Florida quarterback Danny Werfel, one of the best to ever throw a spiral in the Southeastern Conference. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, at Danny Werfel. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. A special tip of the cap, as always, to our friends at WDAE, as well as our sponsors, Bud Light and Crystal. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast is located. Be sure to give us a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.